0: I'm especially appreciative of being invited to come back because you know it's a presbyterian church hosting a, a baptist uh, preacher to preach and uh, whenever i think of those dynamics i think of a, a little scene from the movie the river runs through it years and years ago and uh, it's a it's a good movie about basically fly fishing and father and son's relationships etc but the Presbyterian minister is the, uh, one of the leading characters in the movie, and at some point, a group of Presbyterians are sort of socializing, and they're talking about um, Methodists, and uh, they're trying to kind of get a feel of what Methodists are, and uh, one of them gives the illuminating comment that Methodists are really uh, Baptists who can read. And so, with those perspectives in mind, uh, that's how I'm sharing with you uh, this afternoon. As we come to this passage in the book of Hebrews and the context of it, it's really a letter of exhortation, and it's interesting, he he says at the end of the letter, this brief letter, this brief exhortation I've written, uh, times have kind of changed perhaps uh, when it comes to those kinds of evaluations of dimensions, um, but he sa- the letter is written because there is the danger that those who have now professed Jesus as Messiah are going to draw back because their allegiance to Jesus as Messiah is bringing greater and greater persecution. You may remember that Judaism was one of the legal, licit, allowed religions within the Roman Empire. So to be a Jewish person, you were allowed to practice your religion, you were allowed to practice your faith, that was kind of the official stance. And Christianity, when it started out, looked to everybody on the outside as just another aspect, maybe kind of a a crazy aspect of Judaism. Um, You know, obviously, it began in uh, Israel, and uh, Jesus and all the apostles were Jewish, And uh, as it started out, they started out, they mainly went to synagogues. As it spread, it became increasingly clear that it was going to have a Gentile aspect and a Gentile component with it, and so the church had to navigate those differences as we find them doing throughout the book of Acts. But in the eyes of the official government, this was Judaism. But it was becoming clearer and clearer, partially as the Jewish authorities repudiated that maybe this wasn't Judaism after all. And so there was going to be the increasing problem of it's not one of the legal, licit religions. And so there was the increasing prospect and reality of persecution. And uh, persecution also from Judaism, but from the roman government and the government of the empire's authorities as well and so in that situation there was a temptation let's just dial it back a little bit i mean we believe so many of the same things that uh the jewish people believe we believe in the old testament revelation and the old testament religion and um the distinctiveness now that's come in jesus as messiah and the work of redemption that's come with him maybe we can just kind of walk it back somehow and that in a way is what's going on in this letter and so the inspired writer is very eager to say there's no way now that messiah has come and now that he has accomplished all that he's accomplished and he's the fulfillment who brings to climax everything that was shadow and type in the old testament revelation there's no way to turn back And you should not want to. And so, as it appears at least a couple times in the epistle, the exhortation throughout this letter is, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. No retreat. And so the church will always face the pressure. Give away your angular edges to the religion that you profess to the ways of thinking about God and relating to God that's come to you, not through human intuition that gets it wrong really every time due to the depravity, but that's come through revelation and the uniqueness and the particularity of who Jesus of Nazareth was and the unique work that he accomplished. And so the church always faces the pressure. Walk it back tone it down and yet we have to be committed to holding fast to the confession of our faith yes that faith once and for all delivered to the saints it is by divine revelation prophet and apostolic and the word that came at the end in the in the son himself through those who heard him as this letter begins it's delivered to us not for us to edit or revise or accommodate but for us to embrace gratefully because God has spoken. He's given us a divine word. He's given us the news about how it is that we can be rightly related to him. And so, as I mentioned, uh, the passage that Pastor Cole read at the first is the one that I want us to pick up with. And of course, everything that he said in his message really does set the stage For now, what is needed? He used the phrase of all the calamities that have come upon us due to our sin and due to our rebellion. And so the Bible's message is what's God's answer to our new predicament, our new problem, our new situation caused by sin and rebellion? And what are those calamities that we now need to be saved from? that's what the writer and you know it's always it, it's easy to forget when we do a section of scripture um you know this is an entire letter that really is to be received and responded to in its fullness in its entirety and so even though understandably we just go to sections we always have to remember if i'm really truly going to understand for example hebrews 2 14 to 18 i've got a connected with the rest of what's in this epistle but we break in here and after a section quoting jesus as the one that god has given children to that are his brothers that are his brothers and sisters those are the children that are being described in verse 14 since therefore the children that is the rest of us human beings share in flesh and blood He himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy or render powerless the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps or takes hold of, but he helps, he takes hold of, the offspring of, of Abraham. And Pastor Cole has already reminded us of the centrality of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and promise to God's saving work. Therefore, he, Jesus, our Savior, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God or in things related to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so, since the children, since those he's coming to rescue participate in flesh and blood, he, to be our Savior, had to become just like us. And so that's what is happening in the Incarnation. And if his fellow men, and he'll say more about the Incarnation later in this passage, if his fellow men entering this earthly life by birth leave it in due course by death, it was divinely fitting that he should do so too. Indeed, as F.F. Bruce says, this is stated here as the purpose of his incarnation, that he should die, and in the very act of dying, draw the sting of death. That through death, he might do two things. Through his dying, and it's easy for us to lose how paradoxical that is, it's through his dying that he's going to accomplish these extraordinary acts of deliverance and liberation and salvation, and also conquest. Christ, the victor. Not the victor only, as the explanation of the atonement but certainly christ is victorious in his atoning work and so the first one is this that he might destroy and you come across it again and again in the new testament doesn't mean to annihilate out of existence it means to render powerless that he might render powerless break the power of the one who has the power of death that is the devil So that's the first accomplishment of Christ's atoning work, now that he's become one of us, truly, fully one of us, flesh and blood. I'm going to quote F.F. Bruce a lot, and that may be lame by whatever standards, and I get that, but his commentary on this section to me was just uniquely wise and profound and to the point. And so he makes this point about the paradox of Jesus' victory through dying. It calls for an exceptional effort of mind on our part to appreciate how paradoxical was the attitude of those early Christians to the death of Christ. Why so paradoxical? Because if ever a death had appeared to be, if ever a death had appeared to be triumphant, In other words, if ever it looked like death and evil had won, it was when Jesus of Nazareth, disowned by his nation, abandoned by his disciples, executed by the might, the might of imperial Rome, breathed his last on the cross. Why, some had actually recognized in his cry of pain and desolation the complaint that even God had forsaken him. His faithful followers had confidently expected that he was the destined liberator of Israel, but he had died. And not like Judas of Galilee or Judas Maccabeus in the forefront of the struggle against the pagan Gentile oppressors of Israel, but he had died in evident weakness and disgrace, and their hopes died with him. If ever a cause was lost, it was his. If ever the powers of evil were victorious, it was then. And yet, within a generation, his followers were exultingly proclaiming the crucified Jesus to be the conqueror of death. And asserting, like our author here, that by dying, he had reduced the erstwhile Lord of death to impotence. From now on, the keys of death and Hades were held firmly in Jesus' powerful hand. For he, in the language of his own parable, had invaded the strong man's fortress, disarmed him, bound him fast, and robbed him of his spoil. This is the uni- unanimous witness of the New Testament writers. This was the assurance which nerved martyrs to face death from now on boldly in his name and in the faith of him this sudden change from disillusionment to triumph can only be explained by the account which the apostles gave that their crucified master rose from the dead and imparted to them the power of his risen life that's his first victory he destroys the one who has. He renders the powerless. He neutralizes, for all intents and purposes, the one who had the power of death. You know, commentators and I too kind of balk at calling the devil the one who has the power of death. But in a sense, given the whole nexus, it was Satan who tempted us into evil, into sin, and death is the payment, the penalty. I should say, the consequence of sin. God had warned, the day you eat, you shall surely die. And Satan, in the mysteries of providence, that Pastor Cole alluded to too, Satan was allowed to tempt us, and we fell under his dread sway. And death is now the greatest enemy in the calamities we now face because of our rebellion The devil, the Satan, is the god of this age, the prince of this world. And so death is an aspect of his jurisdiction. But even then, always under the divine sovereignty. Always, ultimately, under God's rule. It was written in the Book of Wisdom, not a part of divine-inspired revelation, but still reflecting the beliefs at the time that God did not make death and he does not delight in the death of the living. God created man, as we've already heard this morning, for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world and those who belong to his, the devil's party, experience it. But now, the writer is going to teach us by his atoning, sacrificial, substitutionary death, Jesus, in this matter too, echoing First John, will destroy the work of the devil. Jesus broke the devil's grip on his people when in death he became the death of death. There's the great title of the John Owen work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And uh, it sounds sort of maybe convoluted at first, but it's not stretching it. Every word there, rightly understood, explains the accomplishment of the atonement. One poet put it this way, He held in hell laid low. Made sin, he sin o'erthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, And death, by dying, slew. Only by becoming man could the Son of God conquer death, which man without him could never have done. Until the conquest of death, death seemed to have the last word. Whatever the other achievements of religious people, death had the last word. Until Jesus. The resurrection faith was cherished before he came, dimly perhaps in the Old Testament revelation, but there are glimmers of it. But his resurrection brought life and immortality to light, Paul says, and gave that faith in resurrection a firm basis. His resurrection isn't expressly mentioned here, but it's implied Because if death had had the last word with him too, how would anyone have supposed, how would anyone start to proclaim and to preach that through death he had disabled the prince of death? But there's still more. For not only did Jesus by his death gain the victory over Satan, again, yes, he is Christ the victor, but he also accomplished a glorious liberation for his people. People, Because it says in verse 15, he delivered, he emancipated all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death is a most potent fear. Part of the proof of it is how much time we spend denying it, avoiding it in one sense dreading it and so drowning that dread in all kinds of superficialities that prevent us from ever taking it seriously and so human beings again and again in their own lives in their own families we seem constantly surprised by death even though we know it's approaching The Puritans used to at least have the wisdom, and some would call it more, but I think it makes good sense if it's headed your way to talk about a good death and dying well, dying prepared. But the fear of it, the dread of it, the dread of what's after, and beneath that dread, something profounder still. Because death is indeed the king of terrors, To those who recognize in it the penalty of sin. Do you remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the non-believer knows certain things. He knows deep down that there really is a God. Creation has made it plain. The intuitions of conscience, chapter 2, also make it plain. It's plain to them, Paul says. But at the end of Revelation chapter 1, Paul insists that the non-believer also knows deep down something else, that they deserve judgment for the life that they've lived. And so no wonder we do everything that we can to just run away from the realization that death, and beyond it, an unknown eternity, is looming and coming and sprawling. And so some cultures manifested their fear of death in certain ways. Ours, it seems, mostly manifested just by trying to avoid it altogether. And of course, that's a futile task. But Christ, by his victory, has emancipated all those who through fear of death were subject to that lifelong slavery. His death has transformed the meaning of death for them To them, his death means not judgment. The death of Christ for us means blessing, not bondage, but liberation. And their own death, when it comes, takes its character from his death. If death can no longer separate the people of Christ from God's love, and the Bible insists that it can, then it can no longer be held over their heads by the devil or any other malign power as a means of intimidation. There's a new Sovereign Grace song that really is an echo of an older Lutheran hymn that that is titled, It Is Not Death to Die. And as much as I've loved the song and loved the lyric, part of me balked at it somewhat to think, well, that seems a little bit about like a denial that we don't want to go there. Death is still very real. Death is still the great and last enemy. And yet as I work through this passage and all that this passage really says about how death even has been transformed by the victory, the atonement, the salvation in Christ, then more and more I thought, There is a very real sense that death is no longer what it used to be because of Christ. And so the lyric to the song says, It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. That's the first verse. It's not death to die anymore because, as Pastor Cole reminded us, the fundamental thing about death is it means separation from God and all the blessedness that goes by being with God. Well, death isn't that anymore for the believer. And so in that meaningful sense, it is not death to die. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It hits me because people in our fellowship, people, friends, people in our families, death still feels and seems so fine. And so to be reminded again, no, it isn't. And we're not, these aren't cunningly devised fables when we talk about the reality of resurrection and reunion and rejoicing. These things are as sure as the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. O oh, Jesus, conquering the grave... Your precious blood has power to save. And those who trust in you will in your mercy find. It is not death to die. But now the inspired writer elaborates on how our Savior accomplished this victorious conquest and this victorious liberation. For surely it's not angels, the readers of this epistle were kind of preoccupied with angels. But it's not angels that he helps, that he takes hold of. And commentators are not sure exactly all that the writer means here, but at the very least it means helps. But he helps, he takes hold of, like he took hold of Israel when they needed his help and rescue, the offspring of Abraham. He became men in order to help men. Sorry, he became a man in order to help men. When the Son of God, the Creator and Lord of angels, humbled himself, he passed by angelic estate and stooped lower still, becoming man for men's salvation. And he became, Matthew 1-1, the son of Abraham. To save all those who believe in him, for as Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, they that are of faith, the same are sons of Abraham. And therefore, in order to be our Savior, the inspired writer says, he had to, it was absolutely necessary, if he were going to be our Savior, to be made like his brothers in every respect. And so once again, the reality and the fullness of the incarnation the word becoming flesh god becoming man and again these are one of the great realities one of the great mysteries of our religion that it's easy to rush right by it's extraordinary what we're claiming it's extraordinary what we're saying happened in the person of jesus of nazareth he became one of us just like us except for sin as the writer will say in chapter 4 so that becoming just like us, living just like us, experiencing what we experience, he could become our merciful and faithful high priest in everything related to God. He suffered with us and for us. And through those sufferings, he was made perfect In obedience, through the things that he suffered, not that he was ever sinful, but to be suited for the task of being an empathizing, sympathizing Savior, he had to learn the lessons of obedience in the midst of the fallenness and suffering in which we live. He became perfect, complete through the things that he suffered, entirely qualified from now on to be our high priest. One who represents us to God and God to us. He's merciful because through his own suffering and trials, he can sympathize with ours. And that's the beautiful teaching of the end of chapter 4. And he's called faithful because he endured every trial, temptation, and test without faltering in his allegiance to God or his devotion to us. The same faithfulness that the reader's of this epistle, need to embrace and to imitate. He was our faithful and merciful high priest in things related to God, and and when it comes to that, the most important matter is the matter of sin, as we saw from Genesis chapter 2 and 3. The fundamental religious question remains, the fundamental question of being a human being is, how can rebel sinners get right with a righteous God? That remains the fundamental human predicament. We can come back to God with confidence only if our sin that caused the separation, that caused the alienation, Only if our sin and guilt has been dealt with. And that is exactly what the inspired writer explains next. That the center and climax of Christ's high priestly work for guilty sinners is the work of he made propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, I'm guessing that a number of you know that some scholars, some translators, even balk at the word propitiation. And some scholars have argued that the Greek word means expiated, not propitiated. Well, no, we don't use those words in every, any other context, so it's, it's hard to follow the discussion sometimes. R.C. Scroll gives a helpful explanation. Expiation has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. By contrast, propitiation has to do with the object of the expiation. So propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude so that he moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. Through the process of propitiation, we are restored into fellowship and favor with him. And the more I thought about it and studied it and thought about it again as I worked through this passage, surely it's the case that the atoning work of Christ and sacrificial substitutionary death accomplished both. F.F. Bruce again, to me, it just cuts right to the heart of it and he says, If sins require to be expiated, that is, taken out of the way, it is because they are sins committed against someone who ought to be propitiated. Why is it so urgent that they be taken out of the way, forgiven, covered over? Because they're the cause of the alienation and the wrath and the enmity of the righteous and holy God. And so I am absolutely sure that the... uh, atonement of christ accomplished both for what is it according to the witness of scripture that we most urgently need to be saved from and i think the scriptural answer is clear and repeated again and again and i'm not even going to go to the old testament it's filled with the teaching i'm going to focus on the new covenant revelation because the false dichotomy is sometimes drawn as if the wrath of God passes from the scene once you get to Jesus and the new covenant. What is it that we need to be saved from? Remember one of Paul's earliest letters, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For they themselves reported concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us. From what? Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That was fundamental for Paul and the Thessalonians. It's not on the edge of his explanation of what salvation accomplishes. It is at the very heart of it. The same biblical chapter that contains the cherished John 3.16 ends with this stark reminder of the only two possible alternatives for human beings. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever disobeys the Son shall not see life. But what? The wrath of God remains. Not will be initiated. The wrath of God remains on him. We are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2. And the great epistle of Romans, Which, if anything, describes the fullness of Paul's understanding of of salvation. The wrath of God, verse 18 of chapter 1, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their uh, unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is is the main predicament in our relations to God. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1 writes of the time when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. In this letter... In chapter 2, at the beginning, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 10 of this letter, the writer writes, Of a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 29 speaks of how much worse punishment. And verse 30 quotes the Old Testament revelation and reaffirms it. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And maybe in a way, given the title for Jesus that's used, the most striking passage in Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and rock and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From what? What fate, what threat is so intense that people prefer? avalanche, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of whom? The Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Propitiation is the answer to the fundamental predicament and so, death and all the other miseries that came with the curse, all the ways that this world lacks shalom, are primarily sourced their consequences of the deserved divine wrath. And so I want to say as clearly as I know how to say it, any view of the atonement, any view of the saving work of Christ, that doesn't answer the predicament that we are subject to a deserved divine wrath that doesn't seem to be a very full atonement. And any Savior that doesn't save me from the wrath to come so fundamental to the biblical revelation is hardly a Savior who can save to the uttermost those who come to him. But as key sections that follow in this epistle make clear, the so great salvation accomplished by Jesus, the son who became one of us to redeem us, does include at its core propitiation and the averting of the wrath of God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We, esteem, we thought he was being stricken and smitten by God and afflicted for his own sin. For his own, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And all the sacrificial system, in the Old Testament, where the believing Israelite would confess the sins and it would be transferred to the head of the animal. And then what happened to the animal? It was slaughtered in sacrifice to make expiation, propitiation. John the Baptist spots Jesus coming down the hillside toward the river for baptism, and what does he say? After all of that Old Testament revelation and background, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what means? Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And then Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, so there's no condemnation anymore, having been justified by what means? By his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul's view of the atonement answers the issue of the wrath of God and the propitiation that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And the church at its best has always recognized how central this is to the achievement of Christ and his cross work. Just one more thing and then we close It's almost added, it seems like like it doesn't necessarily go right with the flow of the argument that the writer's making, but he's, remember the bigger picture, he wants to encourage them to hold fast to their confession. And so he reminds them, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He had endured intense trials and temptations himself, not only the trials common to our human condition, but those specific temptations which went along with his being the Messiah. Time and time again, the temptation came to him from many directions to choose some less costly way of fulfilling that calling in the way of suffering and death. But he resisted time and time again. He resisted to the end and set his face steadfastly to accomplish the purpose for which he had come into the world. Now his people, including the writer the readers of this epistle. They were enduring those trials which are common to humankind, but were also being tempted in their turn to be disloyal to God and give up their Christian profession. Well what a source of strength it was to them to be assured that in the presence of God they had as their champion and intercessor one who had known similar and even sore temptations and had withstood them faithfully and victoriously. No wonder the inspired writer pointedly asks at the beginning of this chapter, how shall we escape? And escape what? A deserved divine judgment? How shall we escape? If we neglect, if we ignore such a great salvation, if we refuse such an extraordinary Savior, and if you're like me, you're the kind of people who come to a conference on on a Saturday and that sort of thing, you've known many of these realities, all these realities probably for a long time. But I hope again and again the Spirit renews your amazement and your gratitude and your wonder and your worship in light of this sympathizing Savior and great high priest that we have. I don't know that we have time to sing it, so let me just say the words of a hymn that echoes many of the themes we've tried to share so far this morning. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. ruined sinners to reclaim. You can say this line with me verse by verse. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, Then anew, this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we pray that you will amaze us by your grace again. And may it be so wondrous to us that we're eager to share and to tell and to proclaim with others. Others all around us in family and friendships, workplace and school that are even today still on that broad road that leads to destruction. Help us to say lovingly and sincerely to urge them also to flee from the wrath to come and to experience that victory of Christ that conquers even our last and greatest enemy so that we can live in hope of everlasting life, that time of resurrection, rejoicing, and reunion with all God's people, who've trusted Jesus to be their great and atoning high priest, their great and sympathizing Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.